Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee, the one true God, our Redeemer and King. Amen. The Lord reigns. God is King. The psalmist proclaims in Psalm 96 this morning, it is a bold and even idealist claim that God is the heavenly king who's worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Everything on the earth resounds with his honor and praise. And this word matters for you and me today. Now for some, this seems obvious. We're in church. God is king. It may sound commonplace, but let's not let habit or familiarity mislead us into ignoring the subversive tone of the message that is for us. And that is that we are being enlisted as subjects in God's kingdom. That our lives are not our own, that we've been bought by a price. That we now are called to live in faithfulness to our great king, God. We are to bend and mold and shape our lives and our desires and our hopes around his will for us. He's calling us to faithfulness. Now for others, it may be hard to reconcile the words of Psalm 96 with the present state of our troubled world. After all, there's so much pain and hurt. There's so much desperation and lostness. There's so much conflict and disease and turmoil. If God reigns on the throne, where is he? Where is he showing up in our hours of need, in the circumstances of my own life? So this is a very provocative message of hope that maybe we can agree with. And when it stays confined in the four walls of this church, perhaps it feels like an encouragement. But what about out there in the real world? What about when you leave to go to lunch and go into your Memorial Day weekend festivities and go into your work week and back to real life? Where is God King there? The psalm is bursting with all of creation, shouting praise and joy. I mean, you've got the sea, you've got the fields, you've got the woods, and they're all proclaiming the praise of their maker. They know who has made them. And that's the interesting thing. There's this contrast set up in this psalm in verse 5. The gods of the nations, they're but worthless idols. They might as well be called ungods. They don't deserve to be called gods because they did not create the heavens and the earth. It's the Lord who made the heavens. It is Yahweh, our King God. He's worthy of all our praise. And as people, we turn, all sorts of thing, we turn to all sorts of things for life and meaning in our life. In the ancient Near East, things like protection, livelihood, prosperity, justice, they all come from living in allegiance to the king of your particular district. If you were to leave that area of district, it's going to shuffle the deck. You don't know what the king or ruler of a different place is going to require. In the Old Testament, there's very much a sense of our God's better than your God that comes through. Kind of like a religious version of my dad can beat your dad up. And so that's why we have these stories like David and Goliath, the child David with nothing but a sling and stones, defeating this enormous giant Goliath who's been taunting the armies of God. That's why we have stories like the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel in a showdown with the false prophets of Baal. Whose God is better? And the Lord God shows his supremacy. But 
the nations around Israel in the time of this psalm, they, they probably were even taunting Israel with a sense of, where is your God? Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, about a century ago, famously wrote that God is dead. That we need to move on to a more enlightened sensibility. That the time for religious morality has perhaps passed and we need to live with more freedom uh, from guilt in our society. I think that's manifested itself in our culture today. What does our culture tend to value and prize if it was to write a Psalm 96? And let's make it more personal. How does, what does your heart look to in praise? Where do your thoughts go in quiet moments? What do you care most about in this world? And where are you placing your ultimate trust and hope? I have a conviction that all of us, you and me and everyone, whether they're here or out there, we, we, we are worshipers. That we may worship a deity, we may worship materialism, we may worship our own independence and our ability to make our own free choices. But the truth is, friends, our gods are dying. The things that we demand come through for us, the things like money, sex, and power, or nicer things like family, career, or our all-encompassing pursuit of happiness. They're failing us, and they're crumbling around us. See, ours is the generation that's the most medicated generation of all time. Anxiety is at an all-time high. We see this in the political discourse of our day. In our quest for upward mobility, and in our unending search for safety and security, we're getting wrung out, exhausted. We're becoming more isolated and lonely. And we become so disconnected from ourselves that we find it tragically hard to connect with our maker, God. So we mask our symptoms. We distract ourselves with leisure, with entertainment, with pursuing accomplishment. As Dr. Phil used to say, how's that working out for you? See, the Isra- we're not different from the Israelites. They lived in their day seeking freedom and purpose, and tragically they forgot who their true king was. The end of the book of Judges, it says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so the prophet Samuel was asked by the people to give us a king so that we can be like the other nations. They were seeking security and flourishing. And they thought they would find that by mimicking what was around them. And the Lord told Samuel, they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me for being their king. They turned against me. And they they started to trust other things. Just like us. Today you might have your doubts, your fears, your anxieties about what your future holds, what our world's future holds. Psalm 96, though, was written in a time when there was no king. It was written after the exile. The temple was in ruins. Jerusalem was a shadow of its former glory. Much of their culture had been destroyed, and they were still under the shadow of the oppression of foreign rulers. So how is it that people can sing the words of Psalm 96? They aren't winning by any stretch of the imagination. And yet they're saying, sing to the Lord a new song. The Lord is on his throne. All of heaven and earth is praising his name. 
heralding a, a, a message, an announcement, even though they're kingless, even though they hadn't att- obtained what they hoped for. It's hard to think that the nations around Israel were actually fearing the God of Israel. They were under the thumb of the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Israel was in some ways insignificant. It was a land placed uh, between two larger world powers and it was seen as a way of trade or a war path. And now a son of David is not on the throne as God had promised. What is happening? Where is this glory of God among his people? Where, where was the temple? Where is the victory over righteous, of righteousness over evil? And yet they held to an audacious hope that the Lord is on his throne. They sing a new song about the Lord's glory and rule. This new song, it's a new era. It's a new day. Much like we always look forward to election cycles so that each warring party can seek to get the upper hand. It will be a new regime, a new policy, a new program. We're headed in a different direction. This is an announcement that there's a new sheriff in town. God is the king of the universe. And it proclaims it throughout this psalm. In verse 1, it says, sing to the Lord a new song. The Christian church sings, friends. We sing because we, we have a God who loves us, who has redeemed us. In verse 3, he says, to declare his glory among the nations. We have a message to declare. Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. God is Lord, whatever is opposing you is not. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord things like honor and power. He's got all the glory and beauty that we're searching for in so many places. Ascribe those things to him. Those are his qualities. And then in verse 10, tell it out to the nations. The Lord is king. This is how we respond to the reign of a king like Jehovah God. In Israel, and we as the church, we understand God's reign in a word eschatologically. It's a theological word meaning with a future orientation or direction. We're living now in light of what is coming. And we're praising God for those things. It is not yet in full view. We do not yet grasp it all the way. And in the words of Paul in Romans 8, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We have a future-oriented hope, friends. And in order to look to the future, we also have to be mindful and look at what has come behind. What works has God wrought in history that informs how we view the future? Over and over again, God tells his people in the Old Testament, remember the Lord your God. Remember what God has done for you. Because we so quickly forget who we are. We so quickly forget who God is. We're created in his image, but we're all of us, you and me and everyone. We are guilty. We are guilty of cosmic treason. 
But God has pursued us in love and He pursued us all the way to sending His Son, Jesus Christ, all the way to Calvary. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. God gave up that which is most costly and valuable to Him to obtain our, and secure our salvation. That's how He demonstrates His splendor and majesty, His strength and His beauty. And that's how he invites us into relationship. In verse 8, it says, Ascribe to the Lord the honor due his name. Bring offerings and come into his courts. And it's talking about the, the nations coming into the courts of the temple. Gentiles are not allowed to be in the temple because they're not ritually clean. And yet this is foreshadowing the, the expansion of the gospel of the good news being proclaimed. It's not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. It is a, it is a welcoming invitation that God gives to us, a widening focus in the gospel that those who are far off will be brought near. That the un- unlovely, the irreligious, as well as the religious, are called... In our gospel reading in Luke 7, we see a picture of this. A Roman centurion, an outsider to Israel, sends his servants, needing needing his servant to be healed. And Jesus, he's called Lord. He calls Jesus Lord. He makes the good profession of faith. And Jesus is astounded and amazed. This outsider who's not, who doesn't have the heritage and history of Israel, yet he, even he understands my power and my authority, that all honor and glory belong to me. Jesus Christ is Lord. He not only is bringing the kingdom, he is the king. He's bringing healing and forgiving sins, but in an eschatological way, pointing forward to the future of the day when all that is broken and wrong will be eradicated. And that's how we know God's glory most purely. It's through Jesus Christ. Because He is the true King. The true King whose coronation and enthronement took place unceremoniously in a trash heap outside the city walls between two thieves. He's the true king who receives the crown of thorns and a robe of mockery. He's the true king who conquers corruption and evil, sin and even the grave with his redeeming love. And he's calling us to fidelity to trust him again and again. That's what's so simple and yet maddening about the Christian experience. It's not just coming to Jesus once, it's coming to him over and over again because he's our reigning king and Lord. It's asking him to bend and mold us more and more into his image, and that's what we reenact every week when we come together and worship. We hear his word proclaimed, we, we sing praises to him. And these things are shaping us, they're acting on us, and we're participating in what God is doing. But we have to come to Jesus again and again, and it's so hard sometimes, to do it over and over again. And we're so prone to want to find a substitute, to look for something or someone that can relieve our need, that can meet our needs in the here and now, and it leaves us longing for the true king to come, for his full coronation to be made known, for the new heavens and new earth to bring all his glory in its fullness. The king's on his throne, friends. This is a reminder from the psalmist in Psalm 96 that even when you wonder if he really is in your own life, 
This is good news, though. It's good news if you are sorrowing or grieving. It's good news for those who are yearning and longing for something. It's good news for those who are drowning in guilt and shame. It's good news in the humdrum of your life when you're wondering if there's more. There is. You serve a glorious and gracious king whose love knows no bounds. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.